Part 4, Chapter 25 of The Beach of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlech. The Beach of Dreams by H. D. Ver Stackpole. Part 4, Chapter 25 stories on the beach for a week after that day not a word was said about their departure for that problematic bay to the westward where ships put in or where they might put in should they find themselves in the region of kerguelen the idea seemed to the girl like one of those nightmare ideas those terrific tasks which fever or indigestion sets to one in dreams it blew during that week as it had never blown before blew from the north and the south and the west atlantic oceans of rain driving seaward from the hills and passing off towards the islands followed by breaks of clear weather and blue sparkling skies filled with the tearing screaming wind they talked a good deal during these days and at odd times and the girl began to get some true glimpses of the mind of her companion a mind that had never grown up yet had in no wise deteriorated from remaining ungrown raft who had been round the world a dozen times and more knew less of the world than a modern child fights and roaring drunks and the smoke haze of barrooms wharf miscellaneous and sailors lodging houses had done him no harm at all his innocence was vast and indestructible as his ignorance bompard and latouche were old men of the world compared to raft they were of different stuff and being yachtsmen they had been long rubbed against the ways of high civilization to the girl born and bred amongst all the intricacies of modern life and thought and with a sense of mind values as delicate as a jeweler's scales raft was a revelation she tried to sound his past he had no past beyond the albatross he could tell all about the albatross and his shipmates and the old man and so forth but beyond that lay only a ship called the pathfinder and beyond that a muddle of ships and ports a forest of masts stretching to a, a great time an infinite distance away the time of his childhood he had no professed religion and he could neither read nor write yet he had remembered her southwester this man without a memory and he was always astonishing her by remembering little things she had said or things she had wished for of social distinction beyond the division of afterguard from forecastle he seemed to possess little idea save for a vague echo caught from the man harbutt about the rich people and as to sex beyond a queer instinctive delicacy and a tenderness due to her weakness and memory of how he had found her she might just as well have been a man or a child like himself another thing that struck her forcibly was the sense of his good humor his mind seemed to possess an equitable warm temperature 
a temperature that it seemed impossible to lower or raise. She could not fancy him getting angry about anything. Had she seen him as in the past, during one of his rare sprees, fighting the crowd and tossing men about like ninepins, she would have said, this is not the same man, and maybe she would have been right. Where did you come from? said he one day to her, as they sat rain-bound watching the gulls dashing about over the crest of the incoming seas. I came from Paris. You have never been to Paris. No, he had never been to Paris. He knew of the place. It was in France. Then she thought that she would interest him by trying to describe it. She spoke of the busy streets and the great boulevards. Then she tried to describe the people and what they were doing, and then, as she talked, it was just as though Kerguelen had become the big end of a telescope and the doings of civilization, as exemplified by Paris, a panorama seen at the little end. What were they all doing, those crowds that she could visualize so plainly? Deputies, lawyers, military men, shopkeepers, pleasure-seekers. Towards what end were they going? Then, with a strange little shock, it came to her that they were going, as a mass, nowhere except from dawn to dusk and dusk to dawn, that they were exactly like the crowd of seagulls, each individual rotating in its own little orbit, and that the wonderful colored and spangled crust called civilization was nothing more than the excretion of individual ambitions, desires, and energies. Then, when she had finished her talk about the wonderful city of Paris, she found that Raft, comfortably propped against a cave wall, was asleep. One of the disconcerting things about this huge creature was his capacity for sleep. He would drop asleep like a dog at the shortest notice and lie with his face in the crook of his arm like a dead man. She would watch him sometimes for half an hour together as he lay like this, and at first a vague fear used to come to her that he had been stricken by some malady in the form of sleeping sickness that made him act like this. She did not know that he had kept awake all those nights he had looked after her and that the same brain that could sleep and sleep and sleep could put sleep entirely away, just as the great body that lolled about like the sea elephants could, like the sea elephants, become a thing tireless and capable of infinite endurance. Then again he would smoke in silence for ages as though oblivious of her existence. She had observed the same thing in Bompard and Latouche, who would sit cheek by jowl without a word, as though they had quarrelled. This trait pleased her, and she fell in with it unconsciously as though his mind had moulded hers and were teaching it the taciturnity of the sea. One day, during the brief spell of calm when they were seated in the sun, dinner over and nothing to do, she tried the effect of literature upon him. She told him the story of Jack and the beanstalk, and was delighted to find him interested when he had got his bearings and knew that a giant was a man of fifty feet high. The cutting open of the giant, it occurred in her version, pleased him immensely. 
then when she had finished she was alarmed to find from words dropped by him that he had considered the story to be true or at least to be taken seriously she did not disillusion him to do so she would have had to tell him that she had lied that was the funny part of the thing he would have said to himself what made her lie to me about that chap by no possible means could he have imagined a person sitting down to invent in cold blood for the amusement of others a yarn about what never happened no it would have struck him as one of those lying personal yarns heard in the forecastle sometimes and likely to produce a boot aimed at the teller's head he had seen men reading books in the forecastle occasionally in old newspapers but of literature fictional or otherwise he had no more idea than the bull sea elephants of astronomy this she intuitively felt and so held her tongue but she had interested him and she went on producing from her memory the story of the forty thieves now he had accepted the beanstalk explanation for he had never to his knowledge seen a beanstalk but the jars in the forty thieves he revolted at for a jar to him was a demijohn or a thing of that size a man could not get into that however on explanation he passed the jars and the boiling oil repaid him he seemed to delight in torture and blood where did you get that yarn from asked he out of a book said she got any more he asked plenty she replied casting round in her mind and wondering how it happens that children's stories run so frequently to blood and ferocity she remembered anatoly france's story of the juggler who juggled before the shrine of our lady having no better offering to make to her and raff sat spellbound after having made out that our lady was the virgin mary the patron of catholic shipmates she told it so well and so simply with unobtrusive footnotes as to monasteries and their contents that he could not but see the point the poor man having nothing to offer but his stock in trade of tricks offered it well what of that it was the best he had and if she could see the other chaps doing things for her she could see him the story whose whole point lies in the supposed non-existence of the virgin as a discerning being ought to cast its gentle ridicule not on the ignorant juggler but on the more learned brethren of the monastery to raft they were all in the same boat and as to whether she could see them or not he didn't know the story fell flat horribly flat told to the absolutely simple-hearted and to the teller after explanations were over it seemed that the listener had in some way cut open modern genius and exposed a little tricky mechanism working on the viewpoint of chilled steel that raft in fact was so big in a formless way that he was much above the story she remedied her blunder on the next story-telling occasion with bluebeard then the weather broke fair and the islands drew away and the clouds rose high and the white terns always flitting like dragonflies amidst the other birds rose like the clouds 
they always flew higher in fine weather and with the smooth seas a new thing showed like a sign the little sea elephants were no longer confining themselves to the river and near shore some of them were taking boldly to the sea the small heads could be seen sometimes quite a long way out this fact gave the girl food for thought the summer was getting on it almost seemed that ponting was right that no ships would venture into that sea between the islands and the shore and that their only hope of rescue lay in that bay away to the west heaven knew how far then an idea came to her two ships had already been here for certain the wreck and the ship of captain slocum then there was the cache some ship must have left that she told raff what was in her mind but got little consolation from him he opined that the wreck wouldn't have been a wreck if she had kept clear of this dangerous water that the cache may have been left by people who had landed somewhere else and as for captain slocum's ship she might have been a whaler whalers according to raft were always off the beaten track and poking their noses into places where honest deep-sea ships would not dare to go well then said she how about that bay you spoke of oh that place said raft yes he hung silent for a moment as if revolving the question in his mind but you were set against it said he at last yes i know but i am stronger now and it seems useless staying here till perhaps the winter comes she paused and looked towards the islands she hated the idea of that journey which she pictured over rocks and across plains where in search of a place that might not exist and where if it did exist no ship might perhaps be found an almost hopeless journey involving unknown hardships you ain't strong enough suddenly said raft it was as though he had touched some spring in her character that set the machinery of determination working i am strong enough she replied then after a moment's pause something in her began speaking something that seemed allied to conscience rather than thought something that spoke almost against her will we ought to go we ought not to lose any chance it seems almost hopeless but it is the right thing to do to stay here is not fighting and in this place one has to fight if one wants to live or to get away i feel that to sit here with one's hands folded is wicked well i believe in making a fight said the other question is will we be any better there's always a chance ay there's always a chance then an idea came to her how about the boat she asked that old boat along the beach yes suppose we took her and rowed down the coast there aren't any oars in her there are oars i hid them amongst the bushes and i can find them again raft considered the proposition for a moment then he shook his head and tapped the dottle out of his pipe not with them winds that you get here said he they'd let out when you're least expecting it and we'd be on to the rocks and done for i'm not saying if we had a boat crew we mightn't try but we're underhanded no we'll have to hoof it if we go hoof it what is that asked she walk it replied raft 
and I'm thinking it's beyond you. You aren't fit for travelling rough like me. Aren't I? I suppose I don't look strong, but I am. Of course I'm not as strong as you, but I can keep on once I begin, and I have been through a good deal ever since that night we were wrecked. I don't think any journey we could make would be worse than that. And I was not prepared for all that, as I am now for anything that may happen. Think of it. We had all been sitting at dinner. It was only a little while after dinner, and I had my evening frock on. Your evening which? Dress. They were all rich people on board the yacht, and they put on different clothes always for dinner. It seemed stupid. Well, I was down below, and I suddenly felt that I must get on deck. So I put on these clothes and my oilskin and southwester. Then, as I was coming upstairs, the collision happened. I got on deck, and it was quite dark until the electric light was put on. Then I saw the stern of your ship with the name on it. She paused with a little shudder and seemed visualizing the terrible picture again. Heave ahead, said Raft interestedly. Then I was thrown into a boat and forgot everything until I woke in the early morning alone with those two men. It was all just like that. I wasn't prepared for hardship as I am now, and I hadn't a companion like you. Those two men were no use. How's that? asked he. Well, they were always grumbling. Swabs. I didn't mind that so much, but they were no use. They wouldn't do things. I had to make them go and hunt for firewood. They might just as well have had no hands. Bompart, the oldest one, wasn't so bad. It was the other chap you done in, said Raft. Well, I reckon you've been through it. Rum thing I saw you first when I was handling a topsail in that blow. The weather broke and I was holding on to the yard when I sighted you away to starboard with the sun on you. Old Ponding was close to me, and he yelled out he'd seen you before, and give you your name, the Gaston de Paris. And we sighted you, said she. I was down below when the steward came with a message that there was a ship in sight. I came up, and there you were, with the sun on you and the storm clouds behind. And do you know you frightened me? How so? asked Raft. I don't know. I felt there was going to be a disaster of some sort. It was almost like a warning. Well, there's no saying, said Raft. I've known a chap warned he was going to be drowned, and drowned he was, sure enough. I was down below asleep and shot out of my bunk by the smash. Then I was on the main deck, the chaps all round shouting for boats, and if you ask me how I got off, I couldn't tell you. One minute a big light was blazing, then it was black as thunder. My mind seemed to go when the black came on. I'd no more thought than a blind puppy. Something saved me. That's all I know. God saved you, said the girl. Well, maybe he did, said Raft. But what made him let all the other chaps drown? I don't know, she replied. But he saved you just as he saved me. I know he looks after things. Look at those sea elephants and the gulls. He leads them about by instinct. What's that? asked Raft. Instinct, said she, suddenly formulating the idea. 
is God's mind. It tells the birds and the elephants where to get food and where to go and how to avoid danger. You and I have minds of our own, but our minds are nothing to the minds of the birds and the animals. They are never wrong. Look out there at those porpoises. Them black fish, said Raft, shading his eyes. Yes, well, look at the way they're going along. They're on a journey, going somewhere, led by instinct. And I think when human beings find themselves having to fight for life, they fall back on instinct. The mind of God comes to help them. Look at me. I believe I found that catch led by instinct, and I would never have pulled through only instinct told me I would, somehow. God's mind told me. Well, there's no saying, said Raft. I don't want to leave here, she went on, but I feel we ought to go. The chances seem small, even if we find that bay. Still, I feel we ought to go. I'm feeling the same way myself, said Raft. Then we will go, and the sooner we start, the better. I'm thinking of them porpoises, said Raft. What about them? Well, there's a saying they hug the shore pretty close if bad weather is coming. It's fine today, but I've a feeling there's going to be another blow soon, and maybe we'd better wait till it's over. Maybe it's instinct, he finished, looking round shyly. The girl laughed. If you feel like that, said she, we had certainly better wait. Maybe the porpoises were sent to tell us. There's no saying, replied he. They were seated on the rocks just where she had watched the great battle and far and near the sea cows were sunning themselves on the rocks whilst beyond the sea beach the penguins were drilling in long lines. Scarcely a breath of wind stirred and the sea lay calm like a sheet of dim blue glass to where the islands sat beneath the sky of summer but the islands had drawn closer since morning, and the birds seemed busier than usual and more clamorous. To the eastward where the cliffs rose higher, guillemots had their home on the ledges of basalt and the wheezy bagpipe-like cry of them came in bursts every now and then, as though they were angry about something. Whilst the cry of the razor-bills and the getaway, getaway of the kittiwakes had a sharper note. The puffins alone were calm, swimming in coveys on the glassy water and leaving long ripples in their wake. End of chapter 25